Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show examines the tensions between the paranoia of populism and the better angels of the American right over the last 100 years. Trump versus Reagan, if you will. We are joined by Matthew Cottonetti, whose new book, The Right, is a wonderful history that examines the push and pull between these two strains of American conservatism between 1920 and 2020. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. States want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it. Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. We just heard two clips that represent the rhetorical peak and nadir of the post-war American right. The first is Ronald Reagan. In his endorsement of Barry Goldwater, Reagan frames the 1964 election as a choice between democratic and bureaucratic rule. The second is Donald Trump on January 6, 2021, insisting in a sly bit of larceny that an election he lost was actually stolen. Reagan inspired his audience to preserve the American Revolution and the unique idea that people should govern themselves. Trump urged his superfans to undermine democracy and disrupt the peaceful transition of power for the first time in American history. In the judgment of history, Reagan and Trump could not be more different. In shorthand, you could say Reagan channeled American conservatism and Trump channeled American populism. And yet, Reagan and Trump are more alike than you might think. Trump's slogan, for example, of Make America Great Again, MAGA, was lifted directly from Reagan's 1980 campaign. For those who've abandoned hope, we'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. And while Reagan's presidency in many ways represented the culmination of ideas and principles articulated in the 1950s by conservative intellectuals like William F. Buckley and James Burnham, he also appealed to voters who resented the legal equality for blacks enshrined in the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Reagan launched his 1980 campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, delivering a speech that endorsed the principle of states' rights in a county where the Klan only 16 years before had murdered three civil rights workers. And while Trump ridiculed the conservative establishment in his campaign, as president, his tax cuts, his appointment of three originalist Supreme Court justices, his confrontation with Iran and his support for Israel, among others, often advanced the conservative establishment's priorities. Not everything that Trump did, but a lot of what he did certainly was in line with the kind of conservative establishment that he ridiculed. Now, I bring all this up not to tarnish Reagan's legacy or to polish Trump's reputation. Rather, I think it demonstrates that the delineation between populism and conservatism, the theme of my guest Matthew Cottonetti's fine book, is not always so clear 
These are two strains on the American right that are indeed in tension, but time and again, they've also worked in harmony. A simple story of conservatives banishing the populist yahoos for 60 years only to be hoisted upon their own batard in 2016 is not quite right. It is a far more nuanced story. Take, for example, one of America's most infamous demagogues, Senator Joe McCarthy. Here he is in 1950. I think we should keep in mind when we refer to Democrats, we refer to the administration, that there are definitely two groups of Democrats as of today. Number one, there are the millions of loyal Americans who have voted the Democrat ticket. Individuals who are just as loyal, who hate communism just as much, and love America just as much as the average Republican. That's one group. On the other hand, there is that small, closely knit group of administration Democrats who are now the complete prisoners and under the complete domination of the bureaucratic, communistic Frankenstein which they themselves have created. Ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't be called that administration Democrat party to call them Democrats is an insult to the millions of loyal American Democrats. They shouldn't be called Democrats. They should be referred to properly as the commie crap party. All right. Now, I should say here, it is preposterous to claim a Truman administration that created the modern American national security state, everything from the CIA to NATO, were commiecrats. Give me a break. Or that George Marshall the great general that helped win World War II and uh, the kind of author of the Marshall Plan that saved Europe, or at least Western Europe, from the communist, was somehow a secret Soviet agent. This is crazy. But McCarthy was a classic populist. He distrusted institutions. He distrusted elites. He was prone to conspiracy theories. He appealed to people's fears and prejudice. And these traits made him a danger to his own side. Eventually, Joe McCarthy would turn on Republicans and accused the army under President Eisenhower of being penetrated by the Soviets. Nonetheless, while McCarthy was dead wrong on the particulars, his choice of topics in which he would demagogue, the threat of international communism, was quite shrewd. This is what we call in American history the Second Red Scare. And the new conservative coalition that emerges after World War II and prevailed through the victory of the Cold War was really built on this foundation of anti-communism. The ex-communists like Frank Meyer Whitaker Chambers and James Burnham, who would help create, along with Buckley, the National Review, were animated by an enduring opposition to the Soviet Union and the ideology that the Soviet Union tried to spread all over the world, international communism. This red menace was the theme of Reagan's great time for choosing speech that we played earlier and the importance of standing athwart it. And while none of the high-profile public servants that McCarthy accused were actually Russian spies, there really were communists at high levels in the U.S. government, from the Rosenbergs, who stole atomic secrets from Moscow, to Alger Hiss, who advised FDR at Yalta. Now, in the end, Joe McCarthy did not prevail. It's actually a nice story in some ways that illustrates the decency and resilience of the American political system. After making his wild claims about the U.S. Army, his putative allies began to turn on him. J. Edgar Hoover, listen to the OG episode, by the way, with Beverly Gage, a great one who was in the premier Red Hunter of his day, really the premier Red Hunter of the 20th century, would badmouth McCarthy behind his back and wouldn't confirm to reporters all of his various wild 
conspiracies, theories. And President Eisenhower dispatched as vice president, Richard Nixon, another pretty successful Red Hunter who kind of nailed Alger Hiss, to take McCarthy down a peg in a famous speech. And eventually the Senate censured Joe McCarthy with the support even of some of his fellow Republicans. Disgraced and isolated, Joe McCarthy drank himself to an early grave. He died at the age of 47 in 1957. We've said this before, but I always like to bring it up. One of the few staffers who went to his funeral, none other than Robert F. Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy attended Joe McCarthy's funeral. Okay, but at the height of his powers, McCarthy had more than a few respectable defenders. Chief among them was the great Buckley himself. His second book, McCarthy and His Enemies, is a clever exercise. He co-wrote this book with Brent Bozell. And he accepts that McCarthy was often reckless in his charges, but he makes the caveat that for McCarthy's many haters, the falsity of his accusations were immaterial to their enmity to a senator that they saw as a bulwark against the open society itself. In other words, Buckley is saying McCarthy had his flaws, but his critics were worse. Here is William F. Buckley making this point nine years after the senator's death on his great show, Firing Line. So it is true that during 1949, 1950, 1951, uh, we were, as a nation, seeking reasons why we had lost so much of the globe. And in the course of seeking the, out those reasons, uh, McCarthy and a few other people committed certain rationalist heresies, i.e. they assumed that what objectively happened was subjectively intended. He should have rested his case by simply saying that they were terrible diplomatic and military technicians. but. Even if it had been true uh, that uh, even if it had been true that these that these gentlemen whom you just named uh, had uh, uh, had turned out to be traitors, uh, even if even if we, we had found out a party card for General Marshall uh, willed to us in his estate, that in my judgment would not for one moment have changed the attitude towards Senator McCarthy by his principal critics. Okay, I bring up McCarthy and Buckley because it complicates the easy narrative of conservative elites excluding populist yahoos from power. There are a few figures, in, by the way, in American history with more elitist, frankly snobbish affectations than William F. Buckley, from his droll, waspy accent to his love of sailing and his fondness for the harpsichord. Buckley was a high-culture intellectual, and you know he had an amazing mind, and that's why it's so worthwhile to read him. But it was also Buckley who famously would say that he would rather be governed by the first names in the Boston Telephone Book than the faculty of Harvard University. And when Buckley ran for mayor of New York, his base ended up being the outer barrel hard hats that eventually would flock two generations later to Donald Trump. Anyway, eventually, Buckley did purge the populists in his own way. His first target was Richard Welch, the deranged leader of the John Birch Society, who was even more delusional than Joe McCarthy, if you can believe it. That trope, you may kind of come, come upon it every now and again about a government plot to put fluoride in the drinking water for mind control reasons or whatever. Well, that was originally from the John Birch Society. A generation later, William F. Buckley and his National Review would break ties with Pat Buchanan, a former Richard Nixon speechwriter after Pat Buchanan, was probably, you know, kind of had one too many anti-Semitic jibes in his writings, populist, and it, and it sort of was, in some ways you could say, in one vantage point, it's a theme. Populist candidates, you know, never really got very far for most of the late 20th century in Republican primaries until Trump. I mean, nobody remembers B1 Bob Dornan or Tom Tancredo and their ill-fated campaigns. But as I said earlier, this delineation between populism and conservatism 
is messy. Let me illustrate this point with the 2008 presidential campaign on the Republican side. And that's when, you know, this is John McCain, who was like out of it and then kind of does this comeback. And he was seeking the Republican nomination. Here he is in Ohio. And I want to play a clip now at first where he's introduced by a local talk radio host named Bill Cunningham. At some point in the near future, the media, the Stooges from the New York Times, CBS, the Clinton Broadcasting System, NBC, the Nobody But Clinton Network, the all Bill Clinton channel ABC, and the Clinton News Network at some point is going to peel the bark off Barack Hussein Obama. That day will come. Okay, by 2022 standards, Bill Cunningham sounds like frickin' Benjamin Disraeli. But at the time, that little dog whistle of including Barack Obama's middle name when discussing the then-senator from Illinois, well, it was an echo of Tailgunner Joe or Father Coughlin or Huey Long or any of the other kind of populists in the 20th century. This is 2008. America is in the midst of the war on terror, and the current Republican president, George W. Bush, went out of his way after the 9-11 attacks to appear at a mosque and refer to Islam as the religion of peace. The populist rabble might revel in innuendo about the Muslim heritage of Barack Obama, but John McCain was having none of it. The person who was on the program before I spoke uh, made some disparaging remarks about uh, my two colleagues in the Senate, uh, Senator Obama and Senator Clinton. I have repeatedly stated of my respect for Senator Obama and Senator Clinton. Uh, that I will treat them with respect. I will call them senator. We will have respectful debate, as I have said on hundreds of occasions. I regret any comments that may be made uh, about these two individuals who are honorable Americans. Okay. I mean, it's the same event. McCain, you know, sort of makes it clear that we're having none of that. We're going to address the Democrats with respect. Great. But it's not the entire story. Because as everybody knows, later that year, John McCain chooses... Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to be his running mate. And she is definitely a populist in the tradition of Joe McCarthy. And, you know, listen to this guilt by association at one of the campaign stops in 2008. This is not a man who sees America as you and I do. We see America as the greatest force for good in this world. this is someone who sees America as imperfect enough to work with a former domestic terrorist who targeted his own country. Now, it's interesting because Palin is making a fairly conventional Reagan-esque point about the greatness of America. It's a position, by the way, that Trump at times would not endorse him when he was president. There was a famous interview that he did with Bill O'Reilly where he you know, was trying to sort of equate America and Russia in terms of their, let's say, extra legal activities overseas. Anyway, but Palin does this as a way to contrast her ticket with that of Obama, who launches political career, she says, seeking the support of domestic terrorists. Now, it was true in a way. I mean, some of Obama's first patrons in Chicago politics were Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. I do think, you know, politics ain't beanbag. It's fair to bring that up. And because they were both formerly of the Weather Underground, and they are, by the way, also both unrepentant. But by the time that Obama met them, they were college professors, and they were hardly the only mentors that Obama had in Chicago politics. But it's a demagogic kind of point. It's a little guilt by association. And it's the kind of point that you would associate with 
talk radio in 2008, but not necessarily, certainly someone like McCain, whose high road style, you know, would, would not condense that kind of thing. I mean, there's a famous story, which I don't want to get too into, but you know, he, he had an instruction to everybody on the campaign that they were not to bring up the issue of Reverend Jeremiah Wright, the, you know, very bombastic, radical preacher whose services that Obama attended. So that's McCain trying to sort of play the role of the gatekeeper. But meanwhile, all around him, you know, is this sort of populist energy against Obama. Now, I should say it is, you know, pretty banal conventional wisdom at this point to say that McCain picking Palin opened the gates for Trump. That column has written 70,000 times. But I bring it up because I don't think that's exactly right, because the elites and the rabble of the American right have both competed you know, you could argue for the agenda of the Republican Party at times, but they've also cooperated in many presidential campaigns in the quest for political power. George H.W. Bush, an elite insider, if there ever was one, this guy was a former director of the CIA, ran in 1988 for president in large part on the populist boob bait that there should be an amendment to the Constitution outlawing the burning of the American flag. I mean, what a ridiculous illiberal, anti-constitutional thing to suggest, but there you have it. It is not so easy to tease apart populism from conservatism. The point is that conservatives and establishment Republicans have been both bulwarks against and beneficiaries of American populism. And in that respect, the rise of Trump in 2016 should not be such a big surprise. In a sense, he was offering the uncut version of what Republican politicians were selling for decades. Trump is a villain, but he's a very American villain. From Huey Long to Father Coughlin to Joe McCarthy, demagogues have emerged as tribunes for the nation's rage and delusions, only to be checked before seizing real power. Well, Trump was such a tribune who actually became president. But even Trump was ultimately stymied. In 2020, Donald Trump's plans to steal the election he lost were foiled by the conservatives in his administration, Vice President Pence, Attorney General Barr, and others. In the end, the populist demagogue's enablers belatedly became his gatekeepers, and the republic survived. Well, audience, today we are really, really fortunate to have as a guest Matt Connetti, the former founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon and the author of a not-so-new, I guess it was released about six months ago, book just called The Right, which is a, which is a really fascinating history of the last hundred years of American conservative thought and the tensions within it. So thank you so much, Matt, for coming on The Reeducation. Thank you for having me, UI. It's a pleasure to be here. For sure. So I want to start with a tension throughout the book that you 
talk about from the 1920s that kind of comes to this day, which is the tension between what might be called American populism, which often has a lot of ugly ideas attached with it, such as racism or demagoguery, and then what might be called Americanism or kind of fidelity to the U.S. Constitution. So talk about that tension that's existed in the battle within the American right and what it, what, how you would compare that to, say, in the 1920s where you start the book and where it is today in the era of Trump. Well, I think you're right to point to that as a running theme in my book, the kind of contest and also occasional cooperation between populism, which is an anti-elitism, you know, a skepticism toward expertise, a kind of a demand that the popular will be enacted without any mediation. And on the other hand, there's what you might call conservative elitism or institutionalism, or a belief that at root, American conservatism is about the defense of the constitutional order. And that means American conservatives can work with populists when they are serving the the ends of that constitutional order. But if they diverge into conspiracy theory or to demagoguery or to political violence, then I, I think constitutionalists need to take a separate stand and, and to criticize populism. So what, what's interesting to me, having written the book and researched basically the past century of the American right, is that you know populism and the right have been associated for quite some time, particularly after the Second World War. And it, in fact, it was one of these populist leaders who is often, I think, correctly described as a demagogue, Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin, who in his campaign to root out communist subversion, or what he supposed to be com- communist subversion in the executive branch, made a major connection with a lot of Americans. And I really think that beginning in 1950, you saw the right and the conservatives connect with the American people in a populist fashion in a way that they had not been able to do for decades. And so ever since, the right and populism have been in this kind of tension-filled relationship where conservatives and the Republican Party require, I think, populist energy and populist votes to win big elections, but often find themselves at odds with what the populists demand in the end. Do you believe, because I, I mean, we're contemporaries in Washington, we've been friends for a long time, and I like the beginning of the book where you talk about this is very much of a personal journey for you. So I asked this, because I've been thinking a lot about this since Trump rose to prominence, did we fool ourselves in the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2000 teens, into thinking that actually there was a lot of popular support for free trade and the conservative principles that come out of the Reagan revolution, uh, when the entire time it was always this uneasy alliance between the conservative elites and the intellectuals and this populist energy which actually had very different goals that Trump kind of exposed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we fooled ourselves. One of the other themes in my book is that there's really nothing new under the sun. That's that true. These arguments have been going on forever. And so, you know, take the, the Reagan years as a starting point when we discuss trade. Ronald Reagan was a rhetorical free trader. He was uh, 
firmly committed ideologically to the idea of free trade. He, in his personal library, owned books from the original advocates of repealing the corn laws in, in England, the original free trade legislation in England in the 19th century. And he had underlined passages there. However, when he became president, the realities of politics always intrude. And so Reagan operationally was less of a free trader than many of his supporters claim. And many, I think he would like to have said, he, of course, confronted the Japanese on currency valuation. He confronted the Japanese on what was called dumping, you know, sending excess supply to the United States. He imposed export controls against the Soviet Union. He had quotas for different types of American industry. He had to operate within a context in which the idea of free trade was not a purely principled or uncontested idea. It was something that, that different interests, as always in the United States, are competing over. And of course, after Reagan leaves, he actually introduced the idea of a North America free trade zone in his campaign launch in 1980, when it's picked up by his successor, George H.W. Bush. And then later, it's uh, also adopted by H.W.'s Democratic successor, Bill Clinton. And of course, there was a huge fight in 1992 and 1993 over the North America Free Trade Agreement, in which the Democratic president, Bill Clinton, and his vice president, Al Gore, were arguing with the independent, Ross Perot, who stood for a protectionist populism, and also some Republicans. But importantly, the Republican leader at that time in the Congress, in the House, was the minority leader and the assumed majority leader after the 94 elections was Newt Gingrich, who was a free trader. So these fights are ongoing. They, they always continue. In 2016, I think a variety of factors led to kind of the collapse of the free trade consensus. One was Obama had let the trade agenda drift. Sure. And he didn't argue for the Trans-Pacific Partnership in a way that I think would have really appealed to America, Americans, which would have been to make it a national security argument that we need TPP in order to solidify the alliance against a rising China. That's Obama was never, he made that argument in some context, but that was never really. He liked to argue that, that China was. was a national security threat so he could justify abandoning the Middle East. That was his main. Right. Thing. Yeah. But even then, how seriously did he take the threat? Right. Well, he didn't. I'm saying you know, he only invoked exactly. the threat in order to right. be a weakling. Anyway. So yeah. Obama didn't care about foreign policy. I think that's one kind of. Yeah. You know, he had a very specific goal, which was to get us out of the Middle East and to to basically decapitate Al-Qaeda. And other than that, I don't think he paid much attention to foreign policy. So that let the trade agenda drift. You had Donald Trump become the Republican nominee. And Donald Trump has opposed free trade from the beginning. It's one of the few issues on which he's very consistent. And you had a you did have a shift in the makeup of the Republican Party toward a coalition that was what we call working class, what that really means is that now a majority of Republican voters do not have a four-year college degree. And they're probably closely tied to the types of industries that might come out on the losing end of different trade deals. And they may not be equipped to, to change jobs all that easily as a result. And for these various reasons, the trade conversation shifted. But I've been struck by even now you'll find many Republican politicians say, well, you know, I support free trade as long as it's fair trade. And that, in fact, is not so different 
than any anything Reagan was saying when he was president 40 years ago. Yeah, but I, I want to get to something. I mean, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that I think that we largely assume for 20 or so more than 20. I mean, we we largely assume for a long period of when I've been politically aware that you know, American voters there were always going to be sort of outlier nativist types, yahoos, conspiracy theorists. That was true for both parties. But they really couldn't, they didn't stand a chance. I mean, I remember John McCain, like he rebuked, you know, somebody who introduced him in Ohio once saying, Barack Hussein Obama, and he wouldn't have that because it was, you know, a dog whistle and it might look Islamophobic. And that was like generally understood that there would, there would always be, you know, people maybe at the local or state level, but it wasn't who the Republican Party was. It wasn't what the conservative movement was. And then we all had a very rude awakening in 2016. And that's right. the part I mean, of it that I think that, I mean, I mean, did that prompt you in some ways to, you know, undertake this really significant work of history as an AEI fellow? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, that, 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 to a certain extent, that was a big shock to everyone. I mean, I think we've all been reeling from that. Yeah, I know it was, I was with you on election night 2016 at UI. Yes, I know we were it was together, a big shock right. for you. It was Certainly. less of a shock for me mainly because I'd been studying already the history of right. populism in the United States. But I think the real difference here is the person of Donald Trump. Okay. As you say, these forces and these ideas and these conspiracy theories have, are always in the background of American politics. And they are able to command even a certain number of elected officials throughout American history on yeah. the right. And then, then there are also left-wing conspiracy like William theories. William Jennings Bryan, right? Yeah, of course, Brian, Brian, you know, 19th century figure into the 20th century, he never becomes president. Right. You know, the highest office he attains is he's Woodrow Wilson's secretary of state. And he resigns because he fears that Wilson's driving us to World War I. So Trump is unique in that at it, in his heart, he is a conspiracy theorist. True. I mean, think about it. He, it, you know, he he began engineering his political comeback in 2011 by staking his claim that Obama wasn't born in the United States. He, 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 he kind of lived in, by that conspiracy theory at the outset. For sure. And more and more, of course, his latest conspiracy theory is that he actually won the 2020 election. Everything was rigged and he deserves to be reinstated in office. That's just who he is. The fact that he became the president of the United States of America authorized everyone else to behave the same way he did. And so whereas these types of populist or conspiracy theories have been in there in the background, and I also think that there is a way in which leaders can channel populism to positive and constructive ends. Right. Trump, in, in effect, legitimized the worst aspects of populism in the Oval Office. And that is that has changed the Republican Party. It's changed the conservative movement. It's warped American politics, and we're still living in the Trump era. Okay. Now, I love the book because you complicate things that we sometimes gloss over and think are very simplistic. One of the things that you complicated, to your credit, because I think we both admire William F. Buckley, is William F. Buckley's anti-McCarthyism. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the fact that in some ways, I mean, McCarthy, I mean, Buckley gets credit for taking on Birchers. He gets credit in some ways for 
trying to be the gatekeeper against the loonies of his era. But he also made some alliances of convenience with these movements as well, and was much later in some cases to renounce some of the uglier side of the populist of his day than sometimes we like to remember. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, I would love to get into that issue. Right. Well, William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review, probably the most important conservative journalist in the 20th century, in many ways, the founder of the post-war, post-World War II conservative movement. I will not accept this um, Russell Kirk slander. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Buckley's an author, television yeah. personality, very famous. He did spend a lot of time in the, in the 60s and 50s trying to build fences around his type of conservatism, his pro-American, anti-communist, constitutionalist, free market conservatism. And so he, from a very early age, opposed anti-Semitism and said it wouldn't have a part. Yeah, he made that. He made that this thing about the Mercury, which was Mencken's magazine, and he said anybody who writes for it after they've taken this anti-Semitic turn is not going to be able to write for the Republic, to the National Review. To his credit, later he basically excises the followers of Ayn Rand, the objectivist movement, from conservative thought because. He viewed Rand as kind of a, a Nietzschean atheist and, and destructive to the values he held dear. Later, as you mentioned, he goes after what's called the John Birch Society, which is goes a, after the leader of the John Birch Society, not the Birchers themselves, which is an important. Yeah, well, right. Well, at first, the leader Robert right. Welch, the founder, but by 1965, National Review is saying that actually that he, the John Birch Society shouldn't have had a place on the right. That's an interesting story in itself because one of the things that finally led to the break was the John Birch Society's announcement that it opposed the intervention in Vietnam. And that was kind of the, the last straw for the conservatives. But in the case of Buckley's early career, I think what you're referring to is he was a strong supporter of Senator McCarthy. He, had, he was a friend of Senator McCarthy. He wrote a whole book late in life called The Red Hunter, which is about his relationship with, with Joe McCarthy. Buckley's second book is a defense of Joe McCarthy, qualified defense in some ways, but but kind of a defense, but more or less a, a full-throated defense. And then also in the 1950s and into the 1960s, Buckley was an opponent of the civil rights movement. Yeah, he, he wrote really, that. I mean, he there's a famous National Review editor, editorial, which is why why the South should prevail. Right now, they uh, to, to to Buckley and National Review's credit, they they come around on civil rights, but they're, it's like after the fact. And there were good conservatives like Milton Friedman who were for civil rights in the moment. We should make that clear. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said. You kind of finished my point, Eli, for me. Sorry, sorry. The, uh, no, it's fine. Buckley would later, you know, in, repudiate these views. He would say that McCarthy actually caused great damage to the anti-communist cause. And then he would adopt a basically the philosophy of colorblindness, which is where the right more or less settled beginning in the 1970s. But I thought it was important to you know, present this very important figure, someone who was important to me personally, who I had the privilege of meeting on a couple of occasions. I think I'm one of the last generation of conservatives to actually have met Buckley personally. That, and I, he was, yeah, he's important to anybody who writes who's on the right at this point, I think, because he was right. a great writer. And it's ironic because he is, if you look at Buckley, he's, he's the 
definition of like an elitist. He loves his harpsichord. He's like, you know, he's a he is almost a snob. And yet his start in politics, I mean, and he makes this shrewd decision as a young man, which you get into it. I love that. I love the chapters on National Review and the conservatives of the 50s. He says, you know what? I'm not going to try and we're never going to get a fair deal with the current institutions and the establishment. So he becomes a counter-establishmentarian and which is, you know, sets the tone for the right for the second half of the 20th century in a lot of ways, which is they build these alternative institutions. So he's extremely important, but he gets his start as somebody who is in some ways providing, you could argue, a kind of intellectual or respectable sheen to some pretty, you know, ugly demagogic ideas that are in the swamp. Right. I mean, every idea, I guess yeah. every idea you can, can have a respectable sheen. Um, oh, fair enough. But, uh, I mean, but I'm just um, saying that, you know, what's interesting about Buckley, which maybe is related to what you're saying is he's a very complicated personality. He, he, he was the son of a, a Texas wildcatter right? who was thrown out of Mexico after the, one of Mexico's revolutions there and ends up settling in Connecticut. And Buckley's mother was also from the South. And so he grew up in the North, but he, his family ties were in the South and that provided, I think, some type of cultural link. Yeah, he's a Catholic well in Waspy, Connecticut. But he's over, exactly. So that was about to yeah. say he, he was a devout Catholic and yet, you know, he goes to school and becomes a celebrity at this famously Wasp institution, Yale University, his first book. You know, he, he's highly educated, but he's always detached from his environments, you know, and it even contributes to his unusual accent for anyone who's heard William F. Buckley Jr. speak or watched videos of him on YouTube. You know, his accent is often described as mid-Atlantic. But whenever I hear that, I think that that must mean the, you know, the absolute middle of the Atlantic Ocean because <laughs> there's no mid-Atlantic American accent that he has. For sure. But, so he was this unusual character. And I think that tied into his populism. With, you know, he's famous for remarking in the 1950s that he would rather be governed by the first 500 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the faculty of Harvard University. Yeah, or when and, he runs for mayor of New York, who supports him? Yeah. I mean, it's the outer barrow right. Donald Trump types in Queens who think of right. him as a savior against all these snobby Manhattanites. And yet here is Buckley, who is you know one of the most cultured kind of public intellectuals we've had. Right. I mean, I, I do think it was important for him that conservative ideas gain purchase and legitimacy within liberal spaces. And because for so many years, when he was growing up, conservatism was simply dismissed as fascism or as racism or just kookery. And so Buckley thought it was important to kind of prove that conservatism actually was substantive. It had real things to say. And you've mentioned his mayoral run one of the reasons he ran for mayor in 1965 of New York City was to show that conservatives had an actual policy agenda. And, and that policy agenda is really interesting. One of his reforms on the taxi commissions is basically Buckley thinking of Uber. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Before he, it was created. Yeah. No, and, and, and that's, I mean, and there's something also about him because he had such a magnetic personality and he was such, he had such a good wit. He was so fast. As a thinker that even though there were times, even in the 80s, he had some ideas that really don't go over very well now, you, you have to sort of love the guy because he was a lively writer. And if you, you just, you know, you want to you want to 
you know, he's he's fascinating. He's he's engaging. He's a very warm personality. And those are the kind of personalities any successful political movement will need in order to attract converts and, you know, to build to build a via politically viable movement. So I want to ask now, this is my own personal peccadillo, but since I've got you in my show, there is a huge contribution that I think you make a you you highlight in the book of ex Trotskyists and ex communists who become like part of the founding generation of modern post war conservatives. And I'm thinking of James Burnham, of course, Whitaker Chambers. But talk a little bit about this. I mean, you. I, I know you don't. I, I don't think we would both say that Hannah Arendt is a. Is a, is a is a is a member of the right, but she was sort of like in that in those circles. The, the, we have this influx of people who know the horrors of Stalin and totalitarianism, or were fleeing the Nazis, are very concerned about this, and come to America. And a lot of them are very influential in you know kind of the the conservative and at least of the Buckley era. And so maybe talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think Hannah Arendt was ever a member. No, of she but she Congress wrote for Partisan Party. Review. And yeah, but she, she was, was part, part of the of like, anti-communist she, left. She right? was the anti-communist left, and so that she was right. an example of something. I agree with you. So, not on the so right. So there's the anti-communist yeah. anti left, right, which is very important in the middle of the 20th century. But then there's this group, as you say, of ex-communists who break off from the Communist Party or from flavors of Marxism, such as Trotskyism, and join the right and actually become uh, the foundation for National Review Magazine when it is published beginning in November 1955. And so that's, as you say, that's figures like James Burnham, Whitaker Chambers, Frank Meyer. It was very controversial for Buckley to give such space to these ex-communists. You mentioned earlier in the program the traditionalist thinker Russell Kirk. He did not like these ex-communists. No, he didn't think they had much of a part in, what, in his vision of conservatism. But they were, I think, important to the burgeoning conservative movement because, one, they knew what they were talking about. You know, and in addition to these ex-communists from the West, there were also emigres from Eastern Europe who were not communists ever, but who also had had firsthand experience with communism, right? And so they knew what they were talking about. They knew the nature of the threat. The other thing they did was they, I think, contributed a, a degree of intellectual heft to the conservative movement. At that time, you know, the first half of the 20th century, to be a, a Marxist or a radical, you had to read a lot of books. And you had to really spend a lot of time arguing. You were intellectuals. And that idea of the left-wing intellectual who is alienated from his society, right, and his government, that kind of gets flipped on its head when these guys join the right, because now they're, they have those same intellectual habits of mind and intellectual depth, but they're coming at the issues from a different perspective. And I think that actually added a lot of force to the arguments that Nash Review was making. But then finally, I mean, to just come full circle, you also had this group of anti-communist liberals. Arendt was one of them, and she herself was an emigre, of course, who were liberal, who supported FDR, who supported civil rights. You know, Arendt had a very complicated position on that. And who none, but who nonetheless, they were anti-totalitarian. They were anti-USSR. They thought the United States really needed to combat communism. 
And if that required a big military, if that required foreign intervention, then so be it. That's what, that's, the stakes were that high. And these anti-communist liberals are an interesting group to follow because by the time we get to the Vietnam War in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and the trends in the counterculture and the anti-war movement on the left, many of this group of anti-communist maybe liberals, yeah. they become the neoconservatives, that's right, in the 1970s. So we would say Norman Bedarits in this period might be called an anti-communist liberal. Oh, he was, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I guess Irving Kristol, too. I was going to say, Irving Kristol wrote he a very was. good essay for commentary about McCarthy in the moment to sort of get back, right. as opposed to Buckley. Or for that matter, to be fair, Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> RFK <laughs> loved McCarthy, everybody. Never forget it. Anyway. That's what you hear on the re-education. That's exactly yeah. You're damn right you do. He attended. <laughs> he was one of the few people to actually go to his funeral in Appleton, Wisconsin or whatever. So They're Good friends. Yes. Pals. Also a terrible attorney general. Now... That's right. And so this is the sort of laying the groundwork for the neocons, which is different from the new right of the 50s, which is an important distinction here. What, in a brief nutshell, what do the neocons bring to the table around that McGovern election where they, 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 were, they were all backing Scoop Jackson? They did the famous Come Home America. And so what, I mean, you know, I mean, and that includes a lot of people who never left the Democratic Party, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan. But you do have this movement that certainly kind of definitely migrates to the right and are, plays an important role. So where, how right. would you say, and I guess we would, you know, for, we're sort of neocons, me and Matt are, so. We are. Yes. Yes. We're, we're one of the. We're the last. We're, we're a diminishing tribe, yes. but there are a few of us left. <laughs> and of course, we're, we're the final generation of neocons. And so I'll yes. talk a little bit about the first two waves of yeah. neoconservative. The first wave was, I think, led by someone who you've mentioned, Irving Kristol. These were anti-communist liberals in the 1950s, who in the 1960s started having doubts about the efficacy of the Great Society programs. Great Society, of course, LBJ's huge domestic reform, kind of a quantum leap in the federal government's involvement in education, in urban life, in poverty, combating poverty. And the first wave neocons who were centered around Irving Kristol and his magazine, The Public Interest, started applying social science methodology to studying whether these programs that LBJ launched worked. And what they found was, even though the noble ideals of these programs, they weren't achieving uh, their, their, their desired ends and in fact may, be, may have made problems worse. So the first wave of neoconservatives were all mu very much focused on domestic policy and on a certain way of thinking about society. And, and also kind of, they were kind of like the data journalists of their, of their day, right? I mean, right. in a way that's kind of an insult. But, you know, but they, they were trying to apply data and studying social problems. Which is to say that, that the, the, the mainstream right had many strengths, but one of them was not an, 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 they weren't very good at social science. They did, they kind of, they, there That's weren't right. a lot of conservative social scientists and the neocons come along and they under, they can right. speak that language. They understand it. And that's yeah. one of the big things. And there are a lot of conservative economists. Yes. There are a lot of conservative philosophers, but there are not, there were not many conservative social scientists in the 1960s and seventies. And so that's what these first wave neocons contribute. Second wave neocons, you mentioned 1972. 
Second wave neocons also were anti-communist liberals. They were had grown up as Democrats. They didn't have a radical past. They were just hardline Democrats. And they become disgusted with the direction of the Democratic Party after George McGovern's nomination in 1972. George McGovern, as you said, his slogan was Come Home America. America was fighting the wrong war for the wrong reasons in Vietnam. We had to reevaluate completely our entire strategy against the Soviet Union. For these second wave neocons, as they said in a famous newspaper ad after 1972 election, come home Democrats, come home right. back to your original principles of FDR's internationalism, Harry Truman's anti-communism, JFK's anti-communism, LBJ's anti-communism, right? That's where they wanted the Democratic Party to be. And these thinkers, they were led by Norman Podhoretz, the longtime editor of Commentary Magazine. And they included people like Gene Kirkpatrick, who later became Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the UN, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senator from New York, beginning in 1976, but also served as UN ambassador under Gerald Ford in 1975. So those are the first two waves of neoconservative. And I think one thing I always try to do in my writing or in my teaching is to communicate to people, young people in particular, that the definition of neoconservative that they carry around in their head is, is by no means complete. And that if you really want to understand neoconservatism, you kind of have to detach yourself from what the term came to mean right. over the last 20 years and go back to the original sources. I just think at this point, it, it should just mean you started off left and you ended up right. Because it can, it, it's, it's so many people would be neoconservative depending on the moment you're talking about and right. what they, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like hard to, and, and it became a slur. It was originally a slur. What's interesting is it was originally a slur by uh, Michael Harrington, who was the leader of the democratic socialist of America when it was much better organization than it is today. And then Irving Kristol just adopted it in the way that, you know, queers adopted queer, you know? So Anyway, and then we all know, we don't need to go through the third wave of neoconservatism, which gave us the Iraq War, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm happy, by the way, audience, I'm not trying to dodge that. I'll do an entire Iraq War defense episode, defending the Iraq. I'll do, the, I'll do it. I'll be the last one. I'll do it. But we don't want to do that today because it's such an important book, and we have a little bit of time left. I want to talk about how you end it. You're talking about Trump, there's a lot of, you know, in sadness, not in less than anger kind of tone to what, how you're writing about it. You feel like a lot of, you know, what, what we've been living through, you know, being on the center right, being on the right, sort of in tatters after the 2016 election. And yet, you know, you haven't given up hope and you haven't become a never Trumper. You know, you are not somebody who I associate now with just a, another, you're not a Lincoln project type where you're just right. basically switch sides because you find Trump so odious. And you said earlier, and you say in the book, that you think that populism in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It just depends on sort of in to, to what end. So yeah. sketch out a, a vision of the future where it doesn't necessarily end in tears. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I do think conservatives have made great strides. I and mean, one thing I'm always trying to push against is this idea that, you know, what if conservatives conserve? You hear that among many of the figures on the so-called new right today. It's uh, conservatism is a waste of time. We need to go in a much more radical direction. 
Well, I actually do think that conservatism achieved great things. I think it helped end the Soviet Union, which is no small thing. Hell yeah. Um, I think it changed the conversation about the nature of our government and how much our government should tax, which is no small thing. I think it reformed welfare in a way that encouraged personal responsibility and also actually helped the people who needed who needed assistance temporarily. And, you know, for social conservatives, and I consider myself a, a social conservative, reconfiguration of the American judiciary, which led to the reversal of Roe v. Wade earlier this year, is an enormous achievement. I mean, the idea that you know, the idea that somehow we failed is ridiculous. Now, yeah. you know, it might be called it might be something of a catastrophic catastrophic victory, you know, because the fallout from that decision and the fact that now pro-lifers will have to argue for their positions in the democratic arena, you know, that there might be some cost to that. But, you know, people fought against that decision for 50 years and now it's gone. And so I think the right should appreciate that victory. So what about the future? Well, as you mentioned with populism, I think that what we've seen with the parental revolt over school curriculum is a form of positive populism. This is from the ground up. It is motivated by real concerns, and I think it's leading to constructive change. I do not think that if a, if a book is too explicit for the New York Times to describe it, the book should not be in a school library. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's a commonsensical position to hold. So I think that's a, that's a positive vision of populism. I think so much depends, to kind of come back to what we were discussing earlier, on the nature of leadership of any political movement. And I think one of the lessons of the 2022 election is that the American electorate will not reward leaders who come across as, as crazy or, 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 or backward looking. And until the right can internalize that message, I think it will face difficulty. There's a chance that we see some signs that Republican voters are actually ready to find new leadership, which may move in a more constructive direction and may lead to electoral victories, which offer opportunity for for constructive change. We have to see. And I think that to that is what the next two years will be about. And largely can, is can I just, figuring out that new leadership. Can I just push back on one element of that? Yeah. I think you're right. But the one factor on this that could change it is the current progressive elites that have enormous sway within our institutions, not Mm -hmm. necessarily the government and not every element of the government. Obviously, the Supreme Court leans right. But if you look at the content moderation bureaucracy exposed by the Twitter files, for example, which has some influence over our discourse, even though it's not the same as a First Amendment struggle of the government, you know, censoring. But it is, it is, it, that kind of thing is important. And that comes out of a kind of... Anyway, my point is that if the left continues to sort of, you know, get high on its own supply and becomes nuttier and nuttier, then it won't matter if the Republicans are led by a Trump or a Trump-like figure that has its own craziness. If the voters are given a choice between you know, mandatory transgender education classes for, you know, fourth graders. And I really won the 2020 election. It's I'm not sure that they reject 
the election denier for the other thing. Does that make sense? Well, I see where you're coming from. I don't know if we have a ballot test of that, where the, like those are the two options, because what right. we found in this most recent election, and even honestly in the 2020 election for president, was the, the way that everyday Americans saw the choice was in places like Georgia, say, in the Senate race or Pennsylvania or Arizona. Yeah, I'll, I'll vote for the guy who can't talk over somebody who's friends with Trump. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, and, and so like, it's not as though Fetterman, yeah, I mean, Fetterman has real medical problems, but he wasn't campaigning on mandatory transgender education, right? No, I know. So I was using that as to, an extreme you example. You have to go by, right. well, that's my point. I think maybe in your case, they were, they were, we don't know how people would choose, but the actual choices people have are somewhat different. And for example, in 2021, Virginia voters chose between Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe. And when Terry McAuliffe said during that debate right. that he didn't think parents should have any say in what teachers teach, that sealed the deal. That well, that, I mean, that I think Youngkin is... Youngkin the election. Right. My point is that if you have crazy on the Youngkin right... Youngkin didn't deny the 2020 election. Correct. He, right. he just avoided it. I but, want more Youngkins. I'm with you. I want more Youngkins. My point is, let's say that doesn't work out and you don't get more Youngkins. Let's say, you know, I don't know. It's, it's unclear what will happen for 2024, but Trump is running and... There's a whole lot of things that can happen in between now and then where, you know, he'll gain advantage, especially if the economy goes south. If it's perceived the Democratic Party has itself kind of gone off in its own kind of insular conspiracy theory right. world, which is not, which is something, by the way, that a lot of the progressives who are, you know, largely correct in their, in their criticism of Trump never seem to get around to acknowledging that there's a kind of craziness and mania that's taken over the anti-Trump side as well. I wonder, I, don't, I think that's much closer. I think it's much harder to predict that as opposed to a normal versus a nutty. Yeah, my thought there is, I mean, Donald Trump is not a popular public figure. 100%. At all. Right. And now, in fact, on the day that you and I are speaking, we see that his approval ratings have fallen to where they were before he started his run for presidency in 2015. Yeah, and DeSantis. He, is, he never got above. Higher, right, yeah. Yeah. Trump never got above 50% ever during his presidency. I mean, he was still, he had a very stable public image at around 45, 43%, but he never got above 50%. He lost the popular vote in two elections. I think a lot would have to happen for Donald Trump to become the president of the United States. Again, I, I just, I, 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 I'm not, um, I like that. So you have that line. I don't like predictions because predictions are often wrong. I agree. We're not, we're not in the prediction business. I'm just simply saying that they're the, what, what bothers me largely, and this is not a, directed at you. It's directed at people we know. Let's just leave it there. That the never Trump movement tends to never come around to recognizing that there is a mania and a craziness that has sprouted up that defines the opposition to Trump. And I myself, I'm not going to ever support Trump. But my point is, is that if you, if you kind of keep telling yourself that the reason that Yunkin won is because of racism when he was on the same ticket as a black woman who's the lieutenant general, lieutenant governor, that is its own kind of craziness, which will can lead to a sort sort of a choice of despair. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's the only way I think Trump can win is if the Democrats become more out of touch and, and, and crazier themselves. Right. I would say they've been better at not at controlling their crazies fair um, in the past couple of years 
And I'd also say, though, you're right, which is the fact that the, the right's greatest victories in my history come because of left-wing overreach, not because yep. of anything the right does. It's because the left-wing overreach produces such terrible conditions in yeah. the economy or in the society crime or the in world the city. Yeah. that people turn to the right. And in some degree, that's actually what led to Trump's electoral college victory in 2016. I agree. The, the country and the world were not in a good place by the end of Obama. And the Democrats, at Obama's urging, put up, a, put up a, an extremely flawed candidate against Trump. Right. And, and he won. So I do, I do agree with you. The left needs to worry about overreach and eccentricity just as the right does. But I, I think that the lesson of the 2022 election is that in key races, the electorate judged the Republicans as more out of step than the Democrats. Specifically Trump Republicans. These were all, you know, it's been right, calculated. The, the, Trump, the Trump endorsed... The, the 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 candidates most associated with Trump, like Herschel Walker. Yes, right. And they, and we have the it's it's and it's indisputable because there are other candidates like Mike DeWine or Brian Kemp who Brian were Kemp. not Trump Republicans who did much better. Right. That's right. And that's yeah, at least and one of my colleagues has said it those Trumpiest candidates ran five points behind the other Republicans. Right. So and they lost. That's right. All right. Well, with that, audience, please buy this book. It's great. Thank you so much, Matt Cottonetti, for coming on. It was a really, I love the book. I've now kind of read through it twice. And I'm so glad we got to do this. Thank you, Eli. It's All been right. a lot of fun. Absolutely. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.